From WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes, a podcast about Wisconsin politics and politicians. I'm Marty Michelson. Each week, I discuss noteworthy developments with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. Here's our latest conversation. So, Jr., there were a couple of developments last week regarding the powers of the governor. The Wisconsin Supreme Court agreed to hear a case seeking to dramatically scale back the ability of governors to use partial budget vetoes to change votes from the legislature. The conservative group Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty brought the case, which seeks to overturn four of Democratic Governor Tony Evers' 78 partial vetoes. The group argues that Evers unlawfully used partial vetoes to put more money into public education than the Republican-controlled legislature had approved. Conservatives control the Supreme Court 5-2. So were you surprised that the court agreed to take the case directly without it going through the lower courts? And how do you think this will turn out? Well, I don't know. I don't like to predict what a court is going to do. But people that I talk to over the past week about the development, they see the court taking this case directly as a sign that it does not bode well for Governor Evers' vetoes. And this is why. Um, The state Supreme Court 41 years ago laid down a precedent that basically said the governor can create, uh, go beyond what legislature intended with the veto, partial veto authority. Um, And then talk to people who are, you know, more versed in law than I am, uh, they see the, the vetoes that Governor Evers did that are being challenged as basically in line with that philosophy from 1978. But we have a much different court right now. We have a 5-2 conservative majority, and there are several members of that court that have expressed concerns about the separation of powers and whether the executive branch is bleeding over into the legislative branch, um, especially Justice Rebecca Bradley and Daniel Kelly, both conservatives. In past rulings that we've seen, they've raised this issue about governors and the executive branch in general exceeding its authority. So if I had to bet my mortgage payment uh, next month, what's going to happen, according to people I've talked to, they're guessing the Supreme Court will likely uh, have issue with these vetoes. Now, what I don't know is like how far might the court go, what that ruling might look like. And again, I hate to predict what a court would do, but the fact the court is taking this case directly not requiring to go to circuit court and appeals court and then here, that suggests to some people I talk to that, you know, those vetoes are in trouble, but we'll see. Um, They're also, uh, you know, conservatives I've talked to, they see this as a part of a bigger discussion in conservative legal circles about the proper role of the various branches of the government. You know, how, what should be their lane? Uh, And liberals I talked to, they were not happy about the development because they see a conflict here because the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, for example, um, is not the first time the court has agreed to take a case from that group directly. Uh, what's more, um, the president of Will was a, uh, basically a reference for Rebecca Bradley when she sought an appointment to the Supreme Court. There are ties like that that make some people a little bit uh, un, uh, a little nervous about whether there's a conflict there. That said, court's plowing ahead, and uh, we might have a new precedent set before long on just how far a governor can go with that partial veto authority in Wisconsin. 
At the same time, Republicans in the legislature are tackling the issue on another front. A state Senate committee last week held a public hearing on whether to amend the Wisconsin Constitution to rein in the governor's veto powers. The author of the bill for a constitutional change, Republican Senator Dave Craig, told the committee that Governor Evers exceeded his authority when he gave the public schools, again via his partial vetoes, $65 million more than what the GOP had approved in the budget this year. Constitutional changes require passage in two consecutive sessions, along with passage in a statewide binding referendum. Do you think this will end up going through that entire process? I'm not sure yet because we're in the beginning stages of this whole process. And the amendment has, for example, 13 uh, Republican state senators as co-sponsors, but you need 17 votes to pass it. Uh, Democrats are not going to vote for the bill most likely because they want to protect Governor Evers and his veto authority. With Republicans, what I'm watching for is, do they find those 17 votes in the GOP caucus to pass it? Because it has to pass in back-to-back legislative sessions. In theory, uh, they could pass it you know, sometime either this fall or in the spring and come back and do it again in early 2021 and possibly uh, get it on the uh, spring ballot in 2021. I'm not sure that it would work, but there, there might be one to do that. Um, but I'm watching is the some of the people who are not sponsors, co-sponsor that amendment are Republican senators who've served for a long time, who are more moderate. And I don't know yet where they fall on this amendment. Um, and that's what you got to watch. Uh, do they find those 17 votes? And if they do, then they can go forward with it. But there are some folks who think, look, you know, there are people who've been around for a long time who realize that this doesn't just go for one party or the other. Um, that they're a little more hesitant to mess around with trying to rein in that veto authority. So it's one thing to watch. But I have heard complaints for a long time from lawmakers about just the, there is a, an imbalance here. The governors in Wisconsin have the most powerful partial veto authority in the country, or one of the most powerful. And it is a, is a powerful tool. Um, now, the only remedy right now is to override a veto. That's very difficult. So there are some who will argue that this is needed to try to rebalance those powers between the two branches of government. Also last week, all seven of Wisconsin's House members, the three Democrats and the four Republicans, voted to rebuke President Trump's decision to withdraw troops from Syria, leaving the Kurds, a longstanding ally of the U.S. in its effort to fight ISIS, open to military action from Turkey. Were you surprised by this universal bipartisan effort? And what does it say, if anything, about Trump's re-election chances here? Uh, one, you know, we've seen Republicans, generally speaking, reluctant to break with Trump because the Republican base has really embraced President Trump. His numbers are very good with the GOP base. But we've seen examples where there have been breaks. Uh, Mike Gallagher up in Green Bay, Jim Sensenbrenner in Miami Falls, for example, they voted against the president when he sought uh, emergency powers to move money around to fund the wall on the southern border. Um, this, though, I mean, in all this talk of impeachment and what's going on nationally, this withdrawal um, really was a bright red line for some Republicans, and they are expressing discontent with the president's decision. Now, where it goes from here, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's one example that there while Republicans have been hesitant to break with the president, there are some lines they feel like he shouldn't cross and they just can't back him when he does.
Plus, there were more comments last week about the impeachment probe from the Wisconsin delegation. Democratic Congressman Mark Pocan of Dane County says he thinks the House will vote on articles of impeachment by the end of the year, but says he can't commit on whether he would vote to impeach until he sees the actual articles. He also said he thinks he can work with Trump on numerous issues, including trade, gun control, and prescription drug costs. At the same time, Democratic Congressman Ron Kind of La Crosse says he supports investigating President Trump, but impeachment and removal from office would be a last resort. What do you make of these comments, and are they in line with voters of those districts? Well, it is the difference between two districts. I mean, Mark Pocan has one of the most liberal districts, most Democratic districts in the state. Ron Kine represents a district that is, while it leans Democratic, is um, a much more swingy and is one that President Trump won in 2016. Um, so for Kine, there's a, a different dynamic to navigate. What's been interesting to watch is as much as national Republicans have been trying to put pressure on Kine to argue that he is vulnerable, we're a year out and couple weeks from the 2020 election, he still does have an opponent. He has, I think, 2.8 million bucks in the bank, at least the end of September, for his uh, campaign war chest. He is in a fairly strong position, but this is an issue that can cause him some fits, and especially with those swingy to, you know, Trump-leaning voters who might be willing to vote for Donald Trump and Ron Kind. If Kind loses those voters, then what? But you have to have somebody to beat him, and right now, Republicans just don't have a person in the race. Uh, for Pocan, you know, he's not in any danger of losing that seat. Um, I don't see this as really more of an issue than he's where his base is. I mean, Democrats are moving forward on this and see that the president, or they believe the early sign of the president is something wrong, and, and they want to see him take a stand on that. And finally, former Republican Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish has quit her job as Executive Director of the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission in Washington. She served in the job for 10 months and says she's resigning so she can be closer to her family in Wisconsin. Clayfish served for eight years as Lieutenant Governor under Scott Walker and is widely expected to run for governor in 2022. Do you think she'll start laying the groundwork for that now that she's closer to home? Oh, she's been laying the groundwork uh, to run 22 from even before she took this job. I mean, basically, the second Scott Walker lost in November of 2018, Rebecca Clayfish was thinking about running on her own in 2022. Um, now, there are some things she's going to have to watch, like originally Scott Walker thought he might run again in 2022. That passed. Uh, Ron Johnson, U.S. Senator from Oshkosh, he's musing about whether to run for re-election, to run for governor, or to retire from public office. So I think it's a clear field, but Clayfish has been made no bones about it. She is interested in running for governor. Um, this resignation, far as I can tell and talk to people, is not related to those desires. It's just the travel got to be too much. She has two, two young daughters who are very active and being gone so much wasn't a whole lot of fun for anybody. But make no mistake about it, Rebecca Clayfish was lining up or, or making, doing the, putting the foundation in to run for governor in 2022, even while she had this job. And um, I would. She's widely expected to announce at some point she's going to run. She's got to watch how 2020 plays out, and then where the pieces kind of fall on this chessboard of who's running for what, and see what kind of path she has. That's WizPolitics.com editor J.R. Ross. 
You can join us each week for our conversations. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to Capital Notes on iTunes, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts.